0: Well, we will have a little review for everybody, Um, so if you're here for the first time, uh, welcome. We're glad you're here, and uh, you're going to get the whole series in about three minutes from the first eight. If you were here, all eight, well, good, but you're going to get it, too. So we're going to have a little review. Um, Since it's Labor Day, I'm just assuming that the people who are here this Sunday are the smartest people I know. Amen! And, uh... It's a good thing we're talking about superiority today, too, because that's good, too, and self-righteousness. But if you're here today, uh, what's good about that is that uh, you're not at the lakes wasting time. You know, you're like growing in your faith uh, today. Now, so here's a little review. Here's the first question. What is the name of the series that we're in? What's it called? Flow. Good. First celebration. I always know you're smarter than they are. No one said a word. And I'm like, serious. Um, so what we're trying to do is stay in the flow of God um, and to stay in uh, the, sp- the Spirit's flow. Uh, second question, uh, we've talked about a particular scripture verse that we've used uh, the entire series. It's in John chapter 7, verse 38, and it says this, Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures say, streams of living water will flow out of your what? Okay, now we're really hurting here, aren't we? Anybody remember? Belly! Belly. Belly. You should never forget that because we all like to feed our bellies. Um, But out of the core of our being, like the essence of who we are, um, there are these rivers of love that flow out of living water. Uh, We also said that when you're in the flow of God, he wants to take us to a place that we can live the whole time. And this place is called what? That's all right. Say it out loud. (laughs) Promise life. Good. People are like, it's a promised (laughs) life. No, it's a good place. Promise life. Like that's where we want to live in, not just in a moment, but all the moments of our life. Um, And it's in that place where we're able to experience the fruits of the spirit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. All of those things flow out of us. When we're in this promised life. In fact, John uh, said it in John 10, 10, or Jesus said these words, I have come that they may have what life and that they may have it more what abundantly. That's right. But then we talked about how if we were really, really honest, most of us don't live in that promised life very often. In fact, most of us probably experience a life that's a little bit different than that life. It's on the right hand side. And that life is called what? Reality. <laughs> that's where you live. Stresses, anxieties, fears, all those things that we get sucked into and we uh, get stuck there sometimes. And in between this reality and this promised life that Jesus has for us, there's something in the middle and it's called what? The gap. See, like even if you weren't here today or any other time. Oh, that's a gap. That's right. There's a gap between what you're experiencing and what God would have you over that life. Now, I want to talk just briefly about this gap issue uh, this morning, and I want to talk to you about it in regards to the fact that when we get to this gap, we don't like this gap, and we actually know that we ought to be living in the promised life, but we get stuck in reality. And when we're in this gap, what we try to do is many times we try to fake it with the church smile. Here, I think we have a picture of it. That's the the church face. The church face is everything in my life is great and everything is good and there's no problems, there's no issues, there's no anything. And I am living in the promised life. And there's this real kind of push for that. And we have that, but sometimes we fake it. And what are some of the things that we fake? We come to church on Sunday and we serve. And we might get financially. And we might say, there are some things in my behavior I'm not going to do. And we develop kind of this church face, this kind of church life. And we want everyone else around us to know that spiritually, we're okay. We're good. But underneath kind of this false exterior is a real life or a real face. It's not a frown face, like I'm sad and things are horrible. It's just kind of like, hmm. I'm not experienced in the abundance of the promised life. And throughout this series, we've been talking about uh, this concept that there are some things that we want to put off and some things that we want to put on. And in this real life, one of the things that happen uh, is we put on this air of superiority. And that's what I want to talk about today. That sometimes, even though we don't mean to come across this way, We do with a superior kind of attitude. Now, we talked about taking off uh, some things, putting on things, and we created an acronym called RAGS, R-A-G-S. So we want to take off some dirty rags in our life if we're going to get to the promised life. If we're going to get to that promised life, we have to take some things off and put some other things on. And the first thing in this acronym is the R, and the R stands for what? Resentment. Right, you can say it in a resentful way even, you know, it's kind of resentment, that's it, okay? Now the A stands for what? Anxiety. We're going to put off anxiety and we're going to put on trust in God. And the G stands for what? Greed, that's right. Mismanaged desires that we have in life. And this morning, I want to talk about what I think is the most difficult rag for us to put off. And it is that of superiority superiority. So we're going to look at a text this morning that Jesus tells a story and he tells the story in Luke chapter 18, starting in verse nine. And this is what he says to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else. Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to a temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And then Jesus added this, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, rather than the other, the Pharisee, Went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, for us to really understand this story, we have to understand the audience that Jesus is speaking to. So take a look at verse 9 again. It says, To some, and then this next remarkable statement, who were confident of their own righteousness... They knew they were righteous and looked down on everybody else. Now, of course, we know that Jesus came into the world to redefine what righteousness was all about. Because it had gotten really, really out of whack during Jesus' day. And so Jesus comes and he redefines it by saying that the essence of righteousness is this. Is a heart that genuinely loves God and loves people. A heart that genuinely loves God and loves people. And Jesus is talking about people who are quite confident in their own righteousness. They don't love anybody, and they put everybody else down, and they elevate themselves. So, what we're getting into here is a misunderstanding of what righteousness is all about. Which is unbelievably important if you want to grow spiritually. Like if you want to grow in your relationship with God and you want to grow into the promised life, it's really, really important to understand what it means to be a righteous person. A person who genuinely loves God and loves other people. Because when we get righteousness wrong, folks, it's deadly. When churches get righteousness wrong, They put guilt and weight upon people, and it can be dangerous. Now, the crowd that Jesus was talking to uh, would have been larger than just a small group. There would be multiple different people all kind of checking out his teachings, people from all different kind of backgrounds. And then there are those people who are actually there who are self-righteous, people who had power and respectability. People who were looked upon as spiritual giants in the culture and everybody looked at them that way as well. Sometimes this probably happens to you if you go to church very much. They're like, oh, you're a church person. Oh, you're that's you're a church person. Well, these were the best of the church people. And they put down everyone who was an outcast or a reject or a spiritual zero. But this is what was so interesting, is that Jesus hung out with the spiritual zeros more than anybody else. In fact, you can't go through the Gospels without him harping on and rebuking an attitude of self-righteousness and superiority, maybe more than any other sin that he goes after. You see, an awful lot of people who were messed up flocked to Jesus. Sinners. Self-righteous people did not flock to Jesus. Have you ever noticed, like, when you pick up this book and you start reading through the Gospels, and you read about Jesus and who he was hanging out with, it never says, and... Jesus was hanging out with the self-righteous people. They flocked to him. Does it say that? No. It always says the sinners, the prostitutes, the tax collectors, all of them flocked to Jesus. So Jesus deliberately tells a parable in a public setting about a character who represents the spiritual giants of the day. But this is what's so weird. Most of the stories that would talk about the spiritual giants would make them the hero. But Jesus starts telling this story and he makes the spiritual giants the villain. And then he makes the spiritual zero the hero. Now, as you can imagine, the Pharisees are not very happy about this at all. It's like Jesus picks a fight with the bully on the playground. The new kid shows up. He's like, oh man, don't mess with the... I don't care who it is. I'll go straight to him. And that's what Jesus does. He goes straight to them and he picks a fight with the most self-righteous bullies of his day. And you can't really understand the story unless you sense this overwhelming tension. I mean, just imagine, you know, The tension that must have been in that room when he calls out the people right in front of their face. And the spiritual giants are offended. They're ready to kill him. In fact, they actually go ahead and they plot this. And a time later, they do. On the other hand, in the same crowd, there are these spiritual zeros, the sinners, they're tax collectors. And all of a sudden, Jesus starts telling this story. And at first they're like, oh yeah, he's going to rip on us again. We're the tax collectors. And then all of a sudden, he turns it around. And they're like, dude, did you just hear what he said? He made us look better than the Pharisees. What up? Everybody's giving like high fives. Yeah, Jesus, you demand." <laughs> now, why did Jesus tell this story? He does, because more than any other sin, the sin of spirit superiority and self-righteousness and judgmentalism can consume us, and we don't even know it. I think it's really, really difficult for human beings to look in the mirror and go, I got some self righteousness in me. I have a superiority problem. I have a judging problem. I mean, think about it. <laughs> I was thinking about it this week. People go to pastors and they'll go to counselors about anger issues all the time. In fact, we have anger management classes. I went through some early on in my marriage because I was struggling with some stuff. But you're like, oh man, I don't like this anger, I don't like this resentment, I need to get it changed. So you go to a therapist or you go to some classes and you get it taken care of. People who suffer with anxiety and fear. Therapists and counselors, they bring them in and they come in and they help them to understand their anxiety and get through some of that. They're desperate for help though when you're at that point. Greed or mismanaged desires. We have meetings going on all the time throughout the week, throughout our country. NA, AA, Celebrate Recovery. Great places for people to come to deal with their hurts, habits, and hangouts. Why? Because they have addictions. They, they have mismanaged desires that they need to work on. And every one of these problems... Resentment, anxiety, mismanaged impulses. Every single one of them, they have treatment centers. There's research being done. There's ways that people can grow in the midst of that. People buy books. They go to podcasts. They listen to TED Talks so that they can deal with these issues that are going on in their own lives. But here's what's interesting to me. I've never talked to a pastor or a therapist who said, You know what? I had a client who came in to me and said, i got a pride problem, and I really need to work on it. I mean, I've got some real self-righteous issues, some superiority issues against other people, and I think I'm more spiritual than some people, and so I need some help. Can you help me, Pastor? I've never had anyone in my life ever walk into my office and say, I've got some superiority issues. In fact, we do not have a meridian services for the unsufferably arrogant people. Well, there is not a Fairbanks for the unsufferably arrogant folks. And you know what? I think if we did open them up, I don't think the biggest consumers of these facilities for the insufferably arrogant would necessarily be Hollywood stars and politicians but it might be people in the church it actually might be the person sitting in your chair see some of you are like man I should have went to the lakes I knew I knew this was the week I should have went see one of the biggest problems folks with superiority and judgmentalism is that the people that suffer from it don't realize that they're suffering from it. They just don't. That's why Jesus attacks it with more brutal honesty than maybe anything. But the sting, unfortunately, kind of gets lost in translation over the centuries. You know, I think most present-day Christ followers, in fact, it would have been interesting if we could have done a poll of your mind when I read this text. I bet some of you read it and was like, man, I'm not a Pharisee. Thank God I'm not like that. And I'm not a tax collector either. I'm better than both of them. I'm actually better than both. And that guy that thinks he... You know, superior, he just didn't get it because the Pharisee, why he didn't understand was it's all about grace. It's not about, you know, all these works that he had to do. So actually, I'm more superior than the person who thought he was superior above everybody else. But maybe, just maybe, the Pharisee actually has something that he can teach us. So let's put ourselves in the place of the listeners of Jesus' day for a moment. In the first place, you hear that word Pharisee and you're like, ugh, bad person. Listeners of Jesus' day would have never felt that way. Pharisee was a person who was pious and who was honorable in God's sight. And people looked up to that person. It didn't have this negative connotation that you and I have with it today. So if we're really going to benefit from this story, what you need to understand, first of all, is that when people of Jesus' day would have heard the word Pharisee, they would have thought a very pious, religious, loving person of God. Pharisees are good people. The term Pharisee is a good word. Now, tax collectors, on the other hand, is a despised and kind of corrupt group of people. For example, in contemporary terms, if you want to hear this story to really understand it, you would say there were two people that went to the church, two people that went to the jar. One was a Peace Corps worker who was going out to Syria and other places in the Middle East creating peace. The other was a drug dealer. And you would be like, "Ooh, we don't like the drug dealer. Get him out. Another detail that we need to know is when Jesus says that these two guys came to the temple to pray, what you need to understand is that prayer in a Jewish setting was very different than what we understand prayer to be in our culture. Often, when we think of prayer, we think of a private devotional kind of time where even when we're in church, we have moments where we just pray by ourselves and we're connected to God just kind of one-on-one. But that wasn't the way it was in the Jewish culture. In the Jewish culture, at 9 a.m. in the morning and around 3 p.m. in the afternoon, sacrifices were made. And so if you were a poor person, and you could only afford maybe like a pigeon, which was Jesus' parents, then that's what you would bring. And if you were a wealthy person, you might bring a lamb or something more. But you would bring this animal at 9 a.m. or 3 p.m., and what would happen is the priests would take it, and they would kill the animal and whatever sin that you had in your life was symbolically represented to be placed within the animal and you went scot free as the animal was killed and so you can just imagine that if people are bringing all this in and they're killing animals it's not like a quiet thing it's not like a you know a pigeon goes hello no pigeons are flying all over the place Bloods everywhere. I mean, this is a mess. And you hear this, you know, screaming out of these different animals. And people, to be able to realize the fullness of the fact that they and their own sin is being removed. They're crying out to God in the midst of all of this. And so it's very different than just like a, a little devotional kind of prayer deal. It's a very public service. Then Jesus says that the Pharisee stands up and he starts to pray. And look at this phrase in Luke chapter 18, verse 11. It says, the Pharisee prayed, what's it say? About himself. He prayed about himself. In other words, he's talking about all the righteous things that he does. And he's kind of in a groove in a public setting. That's why Jesus said these guys would do this all the time on the... Corners, and he said, No, no, if you really want to pray, go do it in a quiet room. But no, no, these guys are praying on the street corners, and all of a sudden, now this Pharisee in the story that Jesus is telling is publicly praying about himself and all those good deeds. Now, usually, sinners, tax collectors, they were not even led into the temple. If you were a sinner, you're a tax collector, you went to the east gate and you stayed there. You gave your animal, you gave your sacrifice. You gave your offering, it was taken in, it was sacrificed for you, but you stayed outside the temple. Customarily, that's what happened. But for some reason, as Jesus is telling the story, he tells the story in which both of them are actually in the temple. Now, this would be quite ironic for this sinner, this tax collector, to be there. And why do you think the Pharisee would be upset that he was in it? Well, first of all, if one of these people actually brushed up against him or kind of fell into him, he was spiritually and ceremonially unclean and he couldn't do any of the other stuff that he wanted to do. Secondly, when he sees all this going on, he does something very, very interesting with this prayer. But it's not something that just the Pharisee does, but it's something that we all do and we've heard and maybe we've done before. Have you ever had uh, the experience where someone is saying a prayer, but they're really not praying to God so much or praying about other people? They're just praying that the other people around them hear them. For example, Oh God, help my husband who is not very kind right now. Bless his heart. Give us victory in our house for him. And may he be generous enough to go to Kohl's and get my layaway plan out. Or, be with my wife. Proverbs twenty-seven fifteen. You said a God, not me, but a wife who is nagging is like constant dripping. God, be with her right now. Some husbands right now are like, I didn't, didn't get anything out of this guy, but Proverbs twenty-seven fifteen. That's what I'm gonna get. Or kids. Oh God, be with my children. I love them. I care for them. But one of the Ten Commandments, God, you know you know which one it is. It says, honor your father and mother. Yeah. Amen. Folks, when someone is praying that, they're really not praying to God. They're not talking to God. The Pharisee is not really talking to God. He's praying about himself and all the good deeds that he's done. He's instructing all the unrighteous people around him and the biggest problem for the Pharisee in this story is this it will come up on the side screens his superiority is cutting him off from the flow of God's spirit his superiority is cutting him off from the flow of God's spirit it's cutting him off from God it's cutting him off from God's people that are around him he's not really connecting with God You see, Jewish prayers typically were all about prayers of thanksgiving. Thank you, God, that you've removed this sin from my life now. Thank you for what you've given to me. Or they would be petitions about things that person was praying for specifically. But not this guy. He says, God, I am so grateful that I am not like other men. I am not a robber. I don't steal. I'm not an evildoer. I'm not an adulterer. I'm not like this tax collector over here. Do you ever find yourself searching for flaws? Deliberately in other people. Do you ever find yourself being judgmental towards maybe some of your co-workers because their work habits aren't quite as good as yours and all of a sudden in your mind you start thinking about a whole series of stuff. Folks, this... This issue of superiority is actually a unique problem, I think, more so for those inside the church than outside the church. People of faith than people of no faith. Because when I try to do something good, what often happens is when I do that good thing, I'm like, man, I did a good thing. Look what I did. Why can't other people be more like me? Why can't they do some of this good stuff? If some of these people would just do some of the good stuff that I'm doing, our world would be a much better place. And sometimes it happens in very, very goofy ways. For example, let's say that I have an appetite problem. I'm a big Macaholic. I go to the golden arches and I worship there. And I have a Big Mac and I just can't stop. But one day, I get a message from maybe the pastor or my small group, which all should be in small groups. But I get some messages. So I go, okay, what I'm going to do then is I'm just going to stop eating Big Macs for this week. And you do. You go a whole week without eating a single Big Mac. Now, you're cranky and you're mean, but you're not eating any Big Macs. And then one day... You go into McDonald's and you order a garden salad. And you start eating it. And you look at the people around you eating Big Macs and Quarter Pounders. And you go, I cannot believe it. Do any of these people have any self-control whatsoever? What is their problem? And then... Two days later, you go back to the Golden Arches and you worship there as you reach your Big Mac. Amen.
1: <laughs> and that's a funny example.
0: But some of us have a tendency to do this. We come to Jesus. We grow closer to him. And pretty soon the the thing that we were doing a day ago, a week ago, a month ago, a year ago, a decade ago, all of a sudden we see that in other people and we start being very judgmental and we think we're much more superior, uh, superior and more spiritual. We see people who maybe be babes in the faith, just trying to learn prayer and Bible reading, and things aren't going all that great in their life, and you kind of look at them and you go, well, look at me, I'm so much more spiritual. I speak in tongues, I have 14 different languages, I know. Okay. Nothing wrong with any of that. All I'm saying is that you can be super spiritual sometimes, And really, what's right underneath that super-spirituality is a superiority and a sense of judgmentalism. I don't think too much sometimes about the person that I'm judging. I don't think about the fact that maybe they had a more difficult childhood and background than I did. I don't think about the fact that I might have had a whole lot of spiritual, emotional, personal assets in my life that they never had. I don't think about the fact that they might have a genetic predisposition to actually be battling some things in their mind that I don't battle. And I never think about the thousand other ways that they are much more righteous than I am. I just focus on the one thing. On the one area that I'm just a little bit better than. And I get self-righteous. It's like taking a step. You take a step and you have to lift one leg up. And then you push it down on the step. And the step kind of represents other people that in one area I might be better. And so I lift myself up and I push down someone else. And I think, how can't other people be more like me? You see, the the Pharisee, he's not really praying at all. He just wants to be heard by everyone else around him. And publicly, he's humiliating this tax collector. And why does he do it? Because it makes him feel good. It makes us all feel good for a moment when we think, oh, I'm better than so-and-so. I mean, I may not be as good as... Pharisee Ed, but I'm really much better than, you know, Pharisee Jack, Jim, and Joe, you know. And why do we play the comparison game? Because we want to have a little bit more of a step above someone else. Well, this Pharisee, that's what he does. He he just starts writing a laundry list. He's like checking off the list, like check, check. He gets the one. I fast twice a week. Check. Now, what's very interesting about him saying this is that Old Testament law tells us that the requirement for all Jews was to fast one day a year on the day of atonement. Now, this guy, he goes beyond that. He says, I fast twice a week. Now, those of you, you know, who are good at math. How many times is that in a year? Maybe no one's good at math. Um, Okay, if you pass two times a week, how much in a year? A hundred and four. We need some help here. Good thing you don't count money. There we go. All right. A hundred and four. You're like a hundred and four. He's got some extra credit points, doesn't he? One is the requirement. He's got a hundred and four. Then he goes on to say this. I give a tenth of all I get. Now, tithing is a biblical concept. If you're not tithing, you should be, or working towards it. The Old Testament says it's the one thing you can test God on, and He will pour out blessings from heaven upon you. Jesus said, hey, it's not just about a tithe. That's a good start, but you should give your whole life. So tithing is a good thing. But in Old Testament times, in that law period... As Jesus is telling this story about this Pharisee, this is what's interesting, is that they didn't have to tithe on everything. There was some produce and some products that they didn't have to tithe on. Like celery. You didn't have to tithe on celery. I'm not making this up. I I read it this week. This is what I do with all my time to give you interesting facts. But you didn't have to tithe on celery. I guess it was because they're like, God doesn't even like celery. No one else has to tithe on it, you know. Well, this guy, he says, I tithe on all I get. Even the stuff that I don't have to tithe on, I'm tithing on it. He's like observing every law and going above and beyond. He's getting the extra credit work. And then he puts down this low tax collector. But he didn't have to do that. He could have done this. As he's in the temple, he could have looked up and go, Oh, I I see the text. They're letting them in today? They don't have to sit at the eastern gate and just give their offerings. They're letting them in today. I'm going to go walk over to one of them right now, and I'm going to say, Hey, man, I'm so glad you're in here. I'm just so grateful that they're not playing that dumb game. It's so dumb that some people aren't welcome to come into the temple but others are i'm so glad that you're here today and this is what i want us to do i just want you to know that god loves you god is for you and i'm for you can you pray for me and i'll pray for you i mean the reality is we're just two guys who both need the mercy of god and his forgiveness and his love and his grace so hey so glad you're here you pray for me i'll pray for you And this is the thing, folks, that if the Spirit of God was flowing in the Pharisee's life, he would have done that. Because the Spirit of God, when it's flowing in a person's life, often asks that person, To be sacrificial and generous and thinking of someone else other than themselves. And sometimes it takes a cost or a price. But the reward from heaven is so great. And you don't even do it for the reward of heaven. You simply do it to stay in the flow of God's spirit. But this guy doesn't do that. Why didn't he do it? He was too devoted to his own stupid pride. And it made him kind of feel good inside to say, I'm better than him. Folks, nothing cuts you off from the flow of the Spirit more than an attitude of superiority or self-righteousness or judgmentalism. You see, the reality is pride is utterly and completely incompatible with love. Every time you have a prideful thought, and you understand what I mean by pride. It doesn't mean pride for like your wife when she does well, or your husband when she does well, or a friend does well, or your kids do well. I'm talking about a pride that says, I'm better than someone else. Every time you have that, folks, it's not love. And yet the irony here is that the Pharisee thinks he's praying and he's pleasing God. You know, the funny thing about you and me is that we can take issues like resentment and anxiety and greed or mismanaged desires. And when we see those, we go, man, this is a problem. But when it comes to superiority, many times we're just blinded by it. We don't even see it. In fact, I have a feeling that if you would have went up to the Pharisee and asked him, hey, how's your spiritual life? He's like, man, it's good. Let me tell you how good it is. I fast twice a week. I tithe. Me and God were just hanging out. And we were just like, we were listening to K-Love together. And we were just like jamming it with Jesus. You know, things were just going really, really good. My spiritual life is tremendous. And yet the reality is he was sinning the entire time. He was attacking another person. He was poisoning his soul. And he was violating love. He didn't even know it. His church face looked really good. Everything's good in my life. Let me tell you all the things that I do. But his real life, the life that God understands and that he knows more than anything else, was a mess. And yet what matters to Jesus and what matters to the Father is not what's on the appearance, not the outside. It's what's at the depths of your heart. So let me ask you this morning. Do you have a Pharisee in you? Do you ever find yourself passing judgment on someone else? Do you ever get a little twinge of joy when you can be critical of a co-worker because they're not doing things the right way? First church I uh, pastored in Flora, Indiana... There was a pastor in the community, and uh, one day I was talking to my wife, any of you that are married, you, you know, like you have those talks where you just kind of like, oh man, he is such a jerk, and we go to these pastor things, and he says the stuff, and honey, you just wouldn't believe what this guy's like. And I just kept going on. I was judgmental. I was putting him down and everything. And she paused for a moment, and then she said, you know, I was reading somewhere that People say that sometimes when you're very judgmental towards someone, it's basically because you envy them. And I said, that is the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. No, I didn't. I was like, ouch. But she was right. I just envied this guy because he did have a bigger church. He was more impactful in our community than what our church was doing. And so I had to put him down. I had, to, I had to lift myself up a little to step on him so I'd be better. Now, the other character in this story is the tax collector. Tax collectors were universally hated. They were the IRS of this day. They were the ones that were going to go in and audit your taxes. They weren't liked. They were corrupt. You see, Rome actually, like ruled Israel, they occupied it, and these tax collectors were Jewish people that would just go out on behalf of Rome saying, Hey, I'll get the money from our people, get a little bit more, and I'll put a little bit on the top, and I'll be driving my caddy soon, and you know, you, whatever. Now in this story, this tax collector though, when he gets to the temple, what's it say? It says that he stood at a distance, he separated himself from the other people. He did it because he was aware of what was inside him. You see, he knew he was totally flawed. He was aware of his own fallenness, his brokenness. And it produced a humility within him. The text says this. He wouldn't even look up to heaven. Think about that. You're in church. Maybe you've had this before. You can't even look up to God. You just feel so bad. In Jewish life, every time heaven is mentioned, it's like God. I I can't even look to God. Verse 13 says, he would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast. Now, this is an extraordinary act that he does because there is a part of the body that Jews thought was more significant than any others, and it was the breast, because what the breast kind of housed was what? What was inside? It's your heart. The core of your being, the essence of who you are. The heart. My youngest daughter, Shiloh, is very, very spiritual. She always has been. And a couple years ago, she said, Dad, where does Jesus live? And, you know, I've gone to theological seminary and I have a master's degree. And I started to espouse to her the (laughs) depth of the relationship of, you know, the word, not just Jesus, but the word, the second of the Godhead. And I said, Jesus lives in your heart. And so a couple days later, Shiloh comes up and she's like, Dad, come here. I want you to fill my heart. So she said, here. She grabbed, her, grabbed my hand, put it up on her little heart. She's like, Jesus is walking around in there. <laughs> Isn't that pretty cool? The act of beating on your breast. Did you realize that that phrase, beating on your breast, is nowhere in the Old Testament? There's only two places in the New Testament. And one of the places, as Jesus is going to Golgotha, as he's getting ready to be crucified upon a cross, it says the people beat their breasts. So as this tax collector is in this temple and he is beating his breast, he is like in agony because his heart is so wrong. And God is coming to him and He says, God, I'm not even worthy. I'm not even going to look up. My heart is wrong. My heart is wrong. I don't care about everyone else's heart, but my heart is wrong. I don't care about yours, but mine is wrong. And yet the honesty led to an opportunity for the tax collector to lower himself to a place of humility that opened himself up to the spirit of God and the flow. Humility, folks, will always open you up to the flow of God's spirit. And God is asking us, lower still. It's ironic to me that I'm teaching on this today because I, I read through the scriptures and uh, I have a reading plan this morning. My scripture verse and the part that I read was in John three thirty. You can look at it this week if you want. But basically, John the Baptist comes and says, I must decrease, but he must increase. And I've been sensing in my own life that God is asking me constantly, Chris, lower still, lower still, lower still. And you know why? Because I struggle to be humble. I really do. I don't know about anyone else's heart. I only see a a certain percentage of your heart. But I know mine. And I know that there are times in which this kind of superiority within me is frightening to me. A few years ago, there was a pastor in our community that uh, kind of got into a scandal. And when I heard about this for the very first time, I was like, wow, he really messed up big time. And wow, our church is going to be bigger than his soon. And I hate that about myself. I really do. I hate that about Chris Bunch. And there are times in which I pass other churches and sometimes I, I think, oh man, it really sucks to be them. And I go, Chris, that's so horrible. And I want to be different. And I want to be much more like the tax collector than the Pharisee. And that's my heart. And sometimes it gets ugly. And it's interesting, when my heart gets ugly that way, the Holy Spirit often prompts me, Chris, don't do that. Like, don't do that. They're my kids. I love them. Why would you ever do that? I'm not comparing you to anyone else. Why would you do that? And I was just thinking that Today, maybe some of you, if you were honest, you'd say, yep, there's a piece of my heart that sometimes gets that way too. A little bit of superiority, of self-righteousness, judgmentalism. I'm better, I'm more spiritual than somebody else. And I thought what we could do is like actually have a moment... Where you could begin your homework assignment for this week. You remember in school you used to have homerooms? And some kids came to homeroom and they got all their homework done. Some of you I know weren't quite like that, but some kids did. Well, this is homeroom today. And you have a homework assignment. And your homework assignment is this for the week. That any time there is a hint of superiority or judgmentalism, that you'll just say, God, I am a mess... Have mercy on me. God, I'm a mess. Have mercy on me. In fact, I'd like us to pray the tax collector's prayer out loud together, all of us in one voice. Let's repeat this out loud together. God, I'm a mess. Have mercy on me. And I want to give you a moment right now that if there's any superiority going on in your life, judgmentalism, self-righteousness, that you might ask God to begin to remove that and then you get to choose which circle you want to be in. The circle of the Pharisee or the circle of the tax collector. So if you would, if you'd just bow your heads for a moment. I'm going to lead us through a prayer and then just give you a moment to confess any of this in your own life. Right now, God, through the power of your Holy Spirit, we ask that you would flow within our hearts today. That if there's any pride or judgmentalism or superiority in us, if there's a name of a person at work, a face, that you would give that to us. Help us come clean, God. And if we've compared ourselves to anyone else, God, help us to remove that today. Whatever the superiority or self-righteousness that is in us, God, we come to confess that now.